Shalom from Jerusalem. This is a Shir Yosefa. This week's Shior will be an exploration of the seven universal laws, which God commanded Moshe that Israel was to teach to the nations. In Hilchot Melachim, chapter 8, Halacha 10, the Rambam wrote, Moses was commanded by the Almighty to compel all the inhabitants of the world to accept the laws given to Noah's descendants. End of quote. Tosafot Yom Tov, in Avot 3, section 14, relates that this obligation is incumbent upon every individual in every area. Rabbi Eliyahu Tuger, in his translation of Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Melechim, comments that one of the fundamental processes which must occur in advance of the revelation of Mashiach is for Jews to seriously assume their role of teaching the universal laws to mankind. He refers to Sephania 3, verse 9, wherein the prophet writes that Hashem will transform the peoples to a pure language that they will all call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. The present-day revival of the seven universal laws and the significant increase in Jewish efforts to assist B'nai Noach and to reach out to the nations to teach these laws and their proper understanding is without doubt a prophetic move of God in preparation for the day when all nations of the world will acknowledge his sovereignty. May he hasten that day. On a recent Tovia Singer show broadcast, Rabbi Singer described the seven universal laws in a unique way. He called them seven streams to Torah. He continued to explain, as we've discussed in previous classes, that the Sheva Mitzvot are now understood by many Rabbeim to provide access for non-Jews to many of the mitzvot of Torah. The seven, in their literal context, are starting points in building a relationship between man and his maker. If one is building a structure, it is important that the foundation be carefully laid before any walls are constructed. The Peshat, or literal context, of the seven universal laws is precisely that sure foundation. However, it must be stressed that even basic observance of these seven laws necessarily involves many other commandments of the Torah if the seven laws are to be properly observed. An excellent resource in this area of observance is the book of The Path of the Righteous Gentile by Rabbis Haim Klorfein and Yaakov Rogalski. This valuable book takes 127 pages to carefully and clearly explain proper observance of the seven commandments. For the more advanced B'nai Noach, Rabbi Aharon Lichtenstein's The Seven Laws of Noach is a very in-depth and thorough study on the seven laws. I must tell you, truly, that the seven universal laws are seriously misunderstood among the nations of the world and also among Jews. The seven commandments are the proverbial tip of the iceberg. They are portals to a massive amount of wisdom and guidance for righteous living and a deepening connection with the Creator. Rabbi Yol Schwartz, the Av Beit Din for the Sanhedrin's Beit Din for B'nai Noach, stresses the obligation of mankind to keep these laws in his book, Light Unto the Nations. Quoting from Rabbi Schwartz, The duties of Torah may be divided into two sections. The first deals with the seven Noahide laws, which contain a number of commandments of a specific nature, deriving from Genesis 2.24 and 9 verses 3 to 7, and expounded in Tractate Sanhedrin, section Aramisot 56a, and also in Tosefta Avodazora 9.4, Genesis Rabbah 16.9, and Deuteronomy Rabbah 2.17. Their general principle is that all mankind is subject to them, and that disregard to them brings a punishment carried out by a court system, whereas fulfillment of them brings both material and spiritual benefits of an appropriate kind, including a portion in the world to come. Sanhedrin 105a. The second section deals with ideals of ethical behavior and good character traits, which are the personal, private service of the individual himself. An individual who does not fulfill these ideals 
cannot be punished through the courts, but God himself meets out punishment as is deemed necessary in any given instance, and the fulfillment of them also brings merit. End of quote. Rabbi Schwartz notes that these two categories of Torah, within them the commandments have been defined by Rabbi S.R. Hirsch, Samson Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, as including three overall principles of basic significance, namely acknowledgement of the unity of the Creator, truth as the key to the inner revelation of the human soul, and the rulership of humanity over animal life. The seven commandments themselves are all prohibitions. This is a positive thing, given that negative commandments are of a higher order than positive commandments, and their fulfillment earns greater merit, since it takes far more effort to refrain from something than it does to fulfill a positive commandment. These seven prohibitions are idolatry, blasphemy, murder, serious sexual offenses, theft, eating the limb of a living animal, and failing to set up a judicial system. In a discussion last week with Rabbi Chaim Richman, the Av Sagan for the Beit Din for B'nai Noach, we were discussing the area of Kashrut, and Rabbi Richman explained that there is a serious issue in North America for B'nai Noach in that the Western methods of stunning and processing animals for slaughter frequently fails to kill them completely before their limbs are severed. What this means is that a ben or bat noach can unknowingly transgress the prohibition not to eat the limb of a living animal if they do not limit their meat intake to meat that has been properly shechted and designated as kosher. We mentioned in last week's class that the Rambam in Hilchot Melachim, chapter 8, Halakha 11, states that the motivation for a non-Jew keeping the seven universal laws must be because God commanded them in his Torah, not for purely intellectual reasons or any other motivation. The oral Torah also prohibits non-Jews from cross-breeding species, from certain aspects of learning Torah, and from constituting a new religion. These prohibitions do not incur punishment in courts of law, but are dealt with by the hand of heaven, according to Rabbi Yul Schwartz. And I'll now discuss each of them uh, to give you some clarity on why these additional prohibitions are considered part of the Seven Commandments. Rabbi Schwartz explains that the prohibition on crossbreeding relates to crossbreeding within species that are what are called extra species, not the same species, that there is no prohibition within a species. For example, it is prohibited to crossbreed a cat and a dog, or a horse and a cow. However, it is permitted to crossbreed two species of dogs or two species of cat. Now, the prohibition on Torah study is a complex and often misleading issue that immediately raises the defenses of B'nai Noach because of the B'nai Noach love and desire for Torah. Likewise, it spans and spawns a good deal of heated discussion amongst rabbis and Jews. Fortunately, Rabbi Yol Schwartz has studied this matter in great depth, and he addresses it in chapter 2 of his book, Light Unto the Nations. This prohibition against non-Jews studying Torah is a very controversial subject. In the Talmud, in Tractate Sanhedrin 59a, it states, A non-Jew who studies Torah is deserving of death at the hands of heaven. Now, if the Torah is the blueprint of creation, why on earth would God prohibit the majority of mankind from studying it? As with almost everything in Talmud, one must not simply take a statement at face value and run with it. Those who do often become guilty of the very thing that the Torah is trying to protect them from. This prohibition on non-Jews studying Torah is definitely one such example. What it sounds like on the surface is not what it means when it's properly understood. So let's explore this. It is important to remember that the oral Torah is written in a very precise manner that requires instruction on how one should read and interpret it. These measures have protected the Torah over time. 
The Oral Torah was verbally transmitted from generation to generation of Jews over the centuries until it first began to be compiled in writing by Ezra the priest after Jews returned from Babylon, finally being published as the Mishnah by Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi around 220 CE. The Talmud, first published in 400 CE, contains both the Mishnah, the Oral Torah, and the rabbinical commentaries thereon, which are referred to as the Gemara. Even though the Oral Torah became written, the primary method of explanation and instruction is still oral instruction by properly trained teachers combined with study of the written texts. Someone who has not been properly instructed will not be able to accurately understand or apply the information provided in the Talmud. This is a danger we see at work today now that the Talmud is easily accessed via Internet. Misinterpretations are rampant and are usually used to create confusion and condemnation towards the Old Torah. As a result, it is rare that a non-Jew reading the Talmud is able to properly understand what is being conveyed, and a Jew who has not been taught how to study the Talmud and interpret it is also in a similar situation. I would like to return now to Rabbi Yol Schwartz's discussion on this prohibition. So as not to depart from Rabbi Schwartz's intent, I will quote a lengthy passage directly from Light Unto the Nations. Note the progression of logic, as this will demonstrate the unique process of reasoning that goes into Talmudic study. Quoting from Rabbi Schwartz, Each word that came forth from the mouth of God was split into 70 languages. Shabbat 88b. Rabbi Yochanan said, the voice split into seventy voices for the seventy basic languages in order that each nation should hear the voice in its own language. Midrash Rabbah to Exodus 85.19 Moses explained the Torah, Deuteronomy 1.5, which the early commentators explained to mean that he gave its explanation in these seventy languages. And since the Jewish people had no use for the seventy languages, he must have intended each one for its individual nation. How did Israel write the Torah? On entering the land of Israel, the Jewish people were commanded to write the Torah on a monument on Mount Gerizim. Rabbi Judah said, They wrote it on stones, as it is said, and they wrote all the words of the Torah on stones, and afterwards they plastered it over. Deuteronomy 23, verse 7. Rabbi Shimon said to him, According to you, how then did the nations of that time learn Torah, as it had been covered? Rabbi Judah replied, God gave them understanding, and they sent their scribes who peeled the plaster off from the stones and carried it away. From then on their fate was sealed, because they could have learned but did not. Rabbi Shimon then said, It was written on the plaster, and beneath it was written, in order that they shall not teach you to do all the abominations. This teaches that if they had repented, they would be received. Hence we learn that in order to return the nations to the true path, one must teach them the Torah. The rabbis in Sanhedrin 59a address this contradiction. A non-Jew who learns Torah is deserving of death. That's what the Rambam said. Whereas Rabbi Meir says, where does one learn that even a non-Jew who learns Torah is compared to the high priest? As it is said, which a man should do and live by them. Neither priest nor Levite nor Israelite is mentioned here, but only man, meaning even a non-Jew. The response of the Gemara is that the non-Jew who earns praise is the one who learns that portion of the Torah which applies to him, the seven Noachide laws. The Me'eri explains, if he would learn the Torah without intending to keep its basic laws, but only out of a desire to learn a Torah, then he is liable to punishment, for people will see his knowledge and believe him to be a Jew, and thus be led astray. However, if he learns the Seven Commandments with their details and all that may be gleaned from them, then even though the main body of our Torah is contained in them, 
it is fitting to honor him as one would a high priest. We do not fear that he will cause others to err, since he is learning what is suited to himself, and all the more it would be permitted to teach him if he were conducting his investigation to ascertain the purpose of the whole Torah and thereby convert to Judaism completely. End of quote. The Rambam, in a responsum to his halacha in Hilchot Melechim 10.9, wherein he stated that a non-Jew who learns Torah is deserving of death, distinguishes between a non-Jew who accepts the holiness of the Torah and one who does not, ruling it is permissible to teach Torah to the former, but not to the latter, because of the potential for damage. However, the Ramban is emphatic that the seven universal laws and all the Torah that they encompass must be taught to all non-Jews. The seven universal laws are general starting points and each involve many other commandments. These are all areas of permitted Torah study. It is also important that one who studies Torah does so out of love and fear of Hashem, and there are rapidly increasing numbers of Bnei Noach who deeply love and fear Hashem and hunger for his Torah. There are really only two people groups in the world, the children of Israel and the children of Noach. This prohibition against Torah study is a general prohibition towards the collective non-Jewish world population. It is actually a protective prohibition. For anyone to study the Torah out of disdain or in an attempt to ridicule or to criticize or to mislead another is prohibited. This would include significant numbers of people from the nations, unfortunately. Given that such a motivation for Torah study could cause portions of God's word to be denigrated, the risk, risk exists that the person involved might transgress the prohibition on blasphemy, one of the seven laws. The non-Jew would then be liable to punishment under these seven laws, whether he acknowledges his accountability or not. So we see that the prohibition in the Oral Torah that states that a non-Jew should not study the Torah is actually a very complicated manner that allows a non-Jew who is sincere in his study and loves Hashem in the Torah and wants to grow in his understanding of the seven mitzvot and how much they encompass, as well as the possibility of taking on the full of the Torah and perhaps at some point in the future becoming a Jew, that the study of the Torah is completely permitted to him and will expand upon that towards the end of the class with some advice from Rabbi Chaim Chlorphine. But by the same token, it is not permitted for a non-Jew to dabble in the, the oral Torah unknowingly, to do so with any malintent, or to do so in such a way that might mislead others. Because by doing so, they put themselves and others at risk of transgressing one of the seven laws, or perhaps more, and then they would be liable uh, for judgment. Now the Zohar explains that all the words of Torah are names of God in various permutations. Obviously, mistreatment of something so holy, whether unintentionally or intentionally, must be guarded against. People must understand and be taught that the Torah is to be approached and studied with tremendous reverence. In times past, Jews actually stood to study Torah as a gesture of law of awe and fear of heaven. You can see from the quotation a while back from Rabbi Schwartz's book that Talmudic study approaches an issue from every aspect of consideration and then debates all its options. This is a method of scriptural exegesis sadly lacking among the nations. Judaism upholds that truth will always stand up to scrutiny. Rabbi Schwartz closes the section that I quoted previously with the statement that it should be understood that none of these disputes indicate a difference among the sages over how to relate Torah to the non-Jewish world. They are merely contentions over the aspect of teaching that is advisable at a given time. Now with respect to the prohibition against starting a new religion, this is self-evident. To start a new religion is to transgress the first of the seven laws, no idolatry. There is one God and creator of the universe, 
who has revealed in his Torah precisely how he desires Israel and the nations to approach, to serve, and to worship him. In the Messianic era, there will indeed be a one-world religion, but it will not be the one-world religion that the United Nations has been trying to craft for the past few decades. And Hashem will be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Hashem, and his name shall be one. Zechariah 13, verse 9. All who survive of all those nations that came up against Jerusalem shall make a pilgrimage year by year to bow low to the king, Hashem of hosts, and to observe the Feast of Booths. Zechariah 13, verse 6. It was interesting to read an article on B'nai Noach in the Israel Center's Torah Tidbits newsletter this past week. The Israel Center is the office of the Orthodox Union here in Jerusalem. The author of the article, Katriel Sugarman, has a weekly column in Torah Tidbits that addresses Beit Mikdash-related topics, temple topics. The article in question is entitled B'nai Noach and Korbanot. Korbanot are the sacrifices. The article discussed the Talmudic discourse which reads, The Master said, Non-Jews are permitted to offer sacrifice these days. For example, after the destruction of the Temple. Vaikra 17.2 forbids Jews from offering sacrifices outside the Temple. But a non-Jew may, theoretically, build a private altar and sacrifice on it whatever he wishes, provided it is in accordance with the Torah laws concerning non-Jews. A Jew, however, is forbidden to assist physically in the sacrifice or to act as their agent. A Jew may only provide instructions on how the sacrifice is to be done under the Torah. However, as the article clearly points out, it is inadvisable for B'nai Noach to attempt to do sacrifices even though they are permitted. Quoting Rabbi Yoshua Friedman, a longtime mentor of B'nai Noach, in the name of Rabbi Yoshua Schwartz, the article states that the people are not presently in the spiritual state that would warrant bringing sacrifices. Without proper understanding of the spiritual complexities of the sacrificial service, a Ben Noach could actually do themselves harm as opposed to benefit. So we can see that there are many social and ethical commandments, practical commandments, and worship commandments not specifically listed in the seven universal laws that are, nonetheless, included within their proper application and fuller observance. The seven laws are seven chapter headings to much, much more. But it must be noted that in many areas there are commandments that are not to be observed by B'nai Noach in the same manner as they are to be observed by Jews. Shabbat and the feasts are primary examples, which I will touch upon later. The source of the seven universal laws is the Torah. In the written Torah, they are found as follows. Not to worship idols can be found in Exodus 20, chapter, verse 3. Not to murder can also be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, as well as not to commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 3. Not to steal can be found in Leviticus 19, verse 11. Not to blaspheme, Leviticus 24, verse 16. Not to eat the limb of a living animal is found in Deuteronomy 12, verse 23. And to establish courts of law is found in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. In the Oral Torah, the seven universal laws are discussed in a number of locations, but the primary sources are Sanhedrin 56a through b, Bereshith Rabbah 34:8, and Tosefta Avodazara 8, section 4. Maimonides, the great Rambam, was passionate about Jewish responsibility to teach the seven laws to the nations. He brings down related halachot in his Mishnah Torah, Sefer Shoftim, and Hilchot Melachim. In Hilchot Melachim, chapter 9, halacha 1, he lists the seven prohibitions. Now, to depart from the topic for just a moment, 
The book of Exodus tells us that the Torah was revealed on Mount Sinai in the midst of bleak and barren desert. We are told by the Torah that the children of Israel encamped in the desert. Midrash Mechilta, chapter 20, states, The Torah was given in an ownerless place. For if it had been given in the land of Israel, the nations of the world would say that they had no part in it. Therefore, it was given in the desert, and anyone who wishes to receive it should come and receive. This is a very telling passage, and it imme- immediately brings to mind a prophecy written by Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will seduce her, the congregation of Israel, and I will lead her to the desert, and I will speak to her heart, and I will give her her vineyards from there, and make the valley of Achor, troubling, into a portal of hope. She will dwell there as in the days of her youth, and as on the day of her ascent from the land of Egypt. And it shall be on that day, the word of Hashem, that you will call me Ishi, my husband, and you will no longer call me Baali, my master. I will remove the names the Baalim from her mouth, and they will not be mentioned again by their name. Hosea 2, verses 16 through 19. This passage suggests that in the latter days, when the children of Israel return to Torah and to their land, they will encounter a desert experience. Remember that a desert, Midbar in Hebrew, can be both a physical location and a spiritual or emotional state of being. Just as the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt by Hashem and led into a barren place where they received Torah and sojourned for a prolonged season of 40 years, learning to become people of the Torah, so too, during Hevli Moshiach, the birth pangs of Messiah, God will lure the scattered and dispersed souls of the descendants of Israel out of their places of captivity and exile, even if the exile has been as cushy and comfy as the assimilation into Western cultures. And he will bring them into places of difficulty, of troubling, the valley of Achor. These could be spiritual difficulties, or material hardships, or both and they could very well be the difficulties that we presently see in the land of Israel today and in the nations with the fanatical Muslim attempts to uh, remove Jewish presence from the world. The purpose of these hardships, as we discussed last week in our lesson on Hashgaha Pratis, Divine Providence, is that wandering hearts and minds among the children of Israel should be influenced to recognize the authority of Hashem's Torah and repent. The personal stories of many B'nai Noach indicate that this pattern of return is also evident amongst non-Jews who have been quickened by Hashem to heed His laws and acknowledge His unity. Now returning to the topic. I entitled this class, Seven or Seventy referring obviously to how many commandments are actually encompassed by the seven universal laws. The interplay and symbolism of these numbers is interesting. Seven is a highly significant number and occurs many places in Torah. The Shabbat is the seventh day, the completion of creation. There are seven days of Pesach, seven days of Sukkot. Shemini Atzeret, the final day, is actually a separate festival. There are seven weeks of Seferat Omer, the counting of the Omer. There's the seven-year agricultural circle that cum- cycle that culminates in Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and the seven Shemitah cycle that culminates in Yovel, the jubilee year. Most importantly for our discussion today, there are seven universal laws, which are seven portals to or streams of the Torah. Seventy is the number of languages into which God divided the tongues of man at the Tower of Babel. The Song of Moshe at the end of Deuteronomy tells us that God divided the world into seventy nations according to the seventy descendants of Yaakov who went down into Egypt. Torah provides seven foundational principles of observance for the seventy nations into which Hashem divided the world. Seventy is divisible by seven ten times. Ten, interestingly enough, 
symbolizes completion, and any group of ten is regarded as a unit. As we can see in the example of the minion of ten Jewish men that is required for public prayer. The number ten is represented by the Hebrew letter Yud, which in turn symbolizes God. It would not be too far off to suggest that the spiritual completion and unification of the nations of the world is dependent upon their observance of the seven universal laws. So are there seven or seventy commandments entailed in the universal laws? Wikipedia Encyclopedia provides a good explanation of how these seven commandments can be subdivided, providing gateways to much more than they appear on the surface. And it also provides a bit of a, a summary of the different opinions of the Rebbeim throughout history as to whether there were 7, 30, 66, 70, or many more. Quoting now from Wikipedia Encyclopedia. Various rabbinic sources have different positions on the way the seven laws are to be subdivided into categories. Maimonides, in Hilchot Melachim 10, Halacha 6, lists one additional Noahide commandment forbidding the coupling of different kinds of animals and the mixing of trees. Maimonides' commentator, Rod Bas, expressed surprise that Maimonides left out castration and sorcery, which were listed in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 56b. The 10th century rabbi, Sadea Gaon, added tithes and Leverite marriage. The 11th century Rav Nisim Gaon included listening to God's voice, knowing God and serving God, and went on to say that all religious acts which can be understood through human reasoning are obligatory upon Jew and Gentile alike. The 4th century rabbi Nisim ben Ruven Garondi added the commandment of charity. The 16th century work Asara Ma'amarot by Rabbi Menachem Azaria Fano enumerates 30 commandments, listing the latter 23 as extensions of the original seven. Another commentator in Kol Hidushe Macharitz Chayes, Volume 1, at the end of Chapter 10, suggests that these extensions are not related to the first seven, nor based on scripture, but were passed down by oral tradition. The reference to the number 30 derives from the statement of the Talmudic sage Ula in Tractate Hulan 92a, though he lists only three other rules in addition to the original seven, consisting of prohibitions against homosexuality and cannibalism, as well as the imperative to honor the Torah. Rashi remarks on this that he does not know the other commandments referred to. Though the authorities seem to take it for granted that Ula's 30 commandments included the original seven, an additional 23 laws is also possible from the reading. The 10th century rabbi Shmuel ben Hofih Gaon lists 30 Noahide commandments based on Ula's Talmudic statement, although the text is problematic. He includes the prohibitions against suicide and false oaths, as well as the imperatives related to prayer, sacrifices, and honoring one's parents. The universal commandments, according to Shmuel ben Hofni Gaon, break down as follows. Under idolatry, no idolatry, an obligation to pray, and non-Jews are permitted to offer ritual sacrifices only to God. Under blasphemy, the responsibility, the commandment to believe in the singularity of God. No blasphemy, no witchcraft, no soothsayers, no conjurers, no sorcerers, no mediums, no demonology, no wizardry, no necromancy, and the commandment to respect one's father and mother. Under the prohibition against murder, no murder, no suicide, no Moloch worship, which is infant sacrifice. Under property, no stealing. Under sexual immorality, no adultery. Formal legal marriages are required. 
no incest with close relatives, no male-to-male -male anal sex, no bestiality, a prohibition on crossbreeding animals, no castration. Under the food laws, not to eat a limb of a living creature, not to eat or drink blood, not to eat carrion. Now this prohibition is for Gerim Toshav, who are B'nai Noach, who have been recognized by a Beit Din. Carrion is the carcass of a dead animal that becomes food for scavenging animals, not that many of us eat carrion these days. And finally, under justice, to establish courts and a system of justice and no false oaths. These are the 30 commandments listed by Shmuel ben Hofni Gaon in the 10th century. Contemporary rabbi Dr. Aharon Lichtenstein counts 66 instructions. But Rabbi Harvey Falk has suggested that much work remains to be done in order to properly identify all the Noahide commandments, their divisions and subdivisions. End of quote from Wikipedia Encyclopedia. Shuvu has had the privilege from the beginning of receiving both the blessing and the counsel of the Sanhedrin Beit Din for B'nai Noach. These rabbis have and continue to spend long hours of diligent study reviewing the seven universal laws, making halakhic rulings on the proper observance of each of the laws and how many of the laws of Torah can be kept by B'nai Noach. It is their learned opinion that B'nai Noach can actually observe almost all of the Torah, with the exception of those commandments specifically designated for Jews, such as the laws for the Kohanim and the Levites, etc. Shabbat and the feasts also fall into this area, but in terms of how they're observed, not in terms of whether or not a B'nai Noach commemorates and observes these days, which we'll discuss. In the opinion of Rabbi Yul Schwartz, the Av Beit Din for B'nai Noach. It is not that B'nai Noach cannot have a form of observance on these special days. It is simply that the observance must differ from the manner in which Jews are commanded to observe these times. This is because Shabbat is specifically identified in the Torah in Exodus 31 as the eternal sign of the covenant between Hashem and the children of Israel. Likewise, each of the Torah feasts mark specific physical and spiritual events in the history as well as the annual life cycle of the children of Israel. It is Rabbi Schwartz's ruling that B'nai Noach should celebrate each of the Torah feasts as well as Hanukkah and Purim but in a manner which commemorates them as significant days in the history of the nation of Israel which was separated from the other nations by God for the purpose of being his witnesses through the observance of Torah and for teaching the universal laws to the nations of the world. A simple example is that Rabbi Schwartz believes that B'nai Noach should commemorate Pesach with a festive dinner on Seder night. He writes as follows in his book on feast observance for B'nai Noach. Unfortunately, it is not yet available in English. Quoting from Rabbi Schwartz's book, in Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch's opinion, the American Civil War and the Declaration of the Recognition of Human Rights during the French Revolution were linked to the exodus from Egypt won by the children of Israel. Thus it is appropriate for every human being to partake of this festival in a symbolic fashion. A. It is a good idea to schedule a thorough house cleaning for the period of Nisan for this suggests that mankind should engage in activities that purify the spirit. Just as the Jewish nation examines its homes lest any leavened bread be found there, for the leavening is indicative of man's evil inclination, which reflects his false pride. It is like dough that swells up when fermenting. Similarly, it is fitting that on the night of the Seder, i.e. the first night of Pesach, to drink cups of wine in commemoration of the Jewish exodus from Egypt a historical event for all mankind, which is noted above, brought with it the concepts of freedom and of an end to slavery. It also brought with it the Torah, which the Israelite nation received upon leaving Egypt on behalf of all the people of the world. End of quote. Rabbi Schwartz also recommends the recitation of Tehillim 114 and 105 during the course of the commemorative Pesach dinner. 
In fact, his book has helpful suggestions for B'nai Noach on observance of each of the Jewish holidays and what their unique significance is for B'nai Noach. In turning our attention to the issue of Shabbat, I would like to bring down advice given to me by Rabbi Chaim Richman, the Av Sagan for the Beit Din for B'nai Noach and the Director for International Marketing for the Temple Institute. Rabbi Richman advises that the nations are to observe Yom Shavu'i, the seventh day, which has always been the day on which Jews observe Shabbat. He says that the concept of Yom Shavu'i goes back to antiquity. On this day, B'nai Noach are encouraged to spend time with their family and friends, study Torah and Tanakh, pray, and celebrate the goodness and providence of Hashem. They can even attend a Torah service at a synagogue if it's appropriate and they have one in their area. In their Yom Shavu'i observance, B'nai Noach should not intentionally refrain from the 39 categories of work that a Jew must abstain from during their observance of Shabbat. Mind you, this is not to say that B'nai Noach must insist that their employers allow them to work on Yom Shavu'i. The 39 categories of work are directly related to construction of the tabernacle and therefore have a particular spiritual significance for Jews and Torah prohibits Jews from such activities on Shabbat. There is also no requirement for B'nai Noach to light candles or perform Kiddush. However, having a festive meal or meals to celebrate Yom Shavu'i are permitted and encouraged. We are coming up to about 15 minutes from the end of the class and we've covered a lot thus far. So I would like now to change direction and go back to the basics, so to speak. I'd like to offer you some general facts and guidelines on the seven laws as brought down by Rabbis Chlorphene and Rogalski in the Path of the Righteous Gentile. These are just some concepts, some rulings, some facts that will help clarify the seven laws. Men and women are equal in their responsibility to observe the Seven Commandments. There are two opinions as to when a child becomes responsible for his or her actions under these laws. The first opinion is based on sufficient intellectual maturity to understand the laws and to observe them. The second opinion is that children become responsible for these laws, children of B'nai Noach, at the age of 12 for girls and 13 for boys, which is the same official age of maturity for Jewish girls and boys in terms of their bat or bar mitzvah. The nations are permanently warned as to their responsibility under the seven laws. Ignorance of the law is not a valid defense. A non-Jew is duty-bound to study the seven universal laws to the best of one's ability and to teach them to their children. Although the nations are commanded only concerning the seven universal laws, they are permitted to observe any of the 613 commandments of the Torah for the sake of receiving divine award, with the following exceptions. Observing Shabbat in the manner of the Jews, as we discussed, resting from the, the actions that were needed for the building of the tabernacle during the exodus from Egypt observing the Jewish holy days in the manner of the Jews, for example, resting in a manner similar to the way a Jew would keep Shabbat, studying those parts of Torah that do not apply to B'nai Noach's service of God. Rabbis Glorfine and Rogalski note that a prime purpose of the seven universal laws is to teach the children of Noach about the oneness of God and therefore those parts of the Torah that pertain to this knowledge are permissible for him to study. This includes the entirety of the 24 books of the Hebrew Scriptures, also the study of any part of the Torah that brings one to greater knowledge concerning the performance of the seven Noahide commandments is permissible. But Talmudic or Halakhic study of subjects that pertain exclusively to the Jews' service of God is forbidden. The Noahite who studies portions of the Torah that do not pertain to him damages his soul. This caution on damage to the soul was also discussed or perhaps first brought to the public eye in recent times by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Yud Tes Kislev Farbrengen 5745 in 1984.
So you can see that Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski have further clarified our discussion of earlier in the class on this very controversial prohibition as to whether or not a Ben Noach can study the Torah. A Ben Noach is not permitted to write a Torah scroll or receive an aliyah to the Torah, as would a Jew. <coughs> a Ben Noach is not permitted to make, write, or wear tefillin. Bnei Noach are not permitted to affix a mezuzah to the external doorposts of one's home or gate. The mezuzah on the entrances to a Jewish home are a specific mark of identification that is related to the covenant between Hashem and Israel. Hence, the prohibition on affixing a mezuzah to the external doorposts or gates of a non-Jew's home. Those are the exceptions to the rule of keeping the, the 613 mitzvot of the Torah. So you can see that it's a limited range. Continuing with other basics from the, the path of the righteous Gentile, the responsibility of the seven universal laws is a yoke of faith in God and must be observed solely to fulfill God's will. Any other reason or intention, according to the Rambam, negates the performance and reward of having done the commandment. One from the nations who engages in the study of the seven universal laws is able to attain a spiritual level higher than the high priest of the Jews, who alone has the sanctity to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. I think I'll read that again. One of the nations, one from the nations, who engages in the study of the seven universal laws is able to attain a spiritual level higher than the high priest of the Jews, who alone has the sanctity to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. That is quite a statement. Something to think about. According to Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski, it is incorrect to think that since the children of Israel have 613 commandments and the children of Noah have seven commandments, the ratio of spiritual worth is proportionally equivalent. Now this is a beautiful clarification on this. Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski explain that the truth is that the seven universal laws are general commandments. Each contains many parts and details. Whereas the 613 commandments of Torah are specific, each relating to one basic detail of divine law. I think I'll repeat that again as well. The seven universal laws are general commandments, each containing many parts and many details. The seven com 613 commandments of Torah are specific. Each relates to one basic detail of the divine law. Therefore, the numerical disparity in no way reflects the relative spiritual worth of the two systems of commandments. There is a mutually complementary difference between a Jew's service of God and a Noahite's. Through observance of the seven universal laws, B'nai Noach refined the world. Through observance of the 613 commandments, Jews reveal God's presence in the world. Reciprocally, refining the world reveals its inherent godliness and revealing godliness in the world automatically refines it. In other words, Israel and the nations need each other. We each have a specific role that God has appointed for us, and hence the way that he has structured the system of commandments that we are to observe in order to fulfill those responsibilities. So are there seven or 70 commandments for the nations to embrace. The bottom line is that there are seven basic guidelines that must be adhered to and which non-observance of will make a non-Jew liable for punishment in a court of law. Now, this is assuming that our courts were still just and based on biblical standards, which unfortunately in most cases we know they are not. These seven basics extend to encompass many, many details and many more commandments 
should the individual desire, observance of nearly all of the Torah is permissible, with the exceptions that we have discussed. For the many commandments which are moral and ethical in nature, a non-Jew is liable for judgment by the hand of heaven. You won't be tried in a court of law if you're not nice to your neighbor or you don't love your neighbor as yourself. I would like to wrap up today's class with two more excerpts from the Path of the Righteous Gentile. Quoting from Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski. By observing the seven universal laws, mankind is given the means by which it can perfect itself. The individual, through these laws, has the power to refine his essential being and can reach higher and higher spiritual levels without limit. For it is written in Tana Debe Eliyahu, I call heaven and earth to bear witness that any individual, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, freeman or slave, can have the Holy Spirit bestowed upon him. It all depends upon his deeds. And it is also written, Ultimately, all this is understood. Fear God, and observe his commandments, for this is the completion of man. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The non-Jewish nations of the world at once have a unique and specific role in the world, one that is exceedingly exalted. The children of Noah are co-religionists of the children of Israel. Together they are peaceful partners striving to perfect the world and thereby give God satisfaction. By viewing himself as a Noahite, the Gentile becomes like the Jew, in that he is a member of a people whose peoplehood, not just his religion, is synonymous with its relationship to God. Now next week, we will begin a new series of classes for July. The theme for the month will be Obstacles to Spiritual Clarity, with our first class on Presumed Identities and Resisting the Scepter. We'll talk about identity theft. Are we guilty? We'll talk about how this rush to embrace the Torah often results in people taking on customs and mitzvot and traditions of Jews that, in essence, as we saw today, is actually um, impacting upon the signs of the covenant that distinguish Israel as the nation that God appointed for his nation of priests and witnesses. And so we need to take a look at that because there are some, some legal issues as it relates to the Torah, as well as the fact that... Uh, it can be deceptive. Um, many times I've had other Jews say to me that they had spoken for a long time with someone, thought that they were a Jew, only to have them reveal to them uh, later in the discussion that they were actually a Christian. And it was really unsettling. You know, plus, uh, it's sort of as well, well, we'll talk about it in next week's class. We're going to talk about um, the Torah. It's not in heaven, it's in our heart and in our mouth, as Moshe said, to do it. And we're also going to talk about who holds the scepter for Judah. Does Judah still have the authority to, in, to guard, to protect, to interpret and teach the Torah? There are those in other religions who would say that that authority ended 2,000 years ago. There are others who say that it's passed to the tribe of God and identify members of their, their ranks as being uh, possibly from the tribe of God. We'll look at that issue of um, rabbinic authority. Now, next week's class, we'll be back on Thursday again, on July the 6th at 10 a.m. EST. So, are there any questions that anyone would like to put up on the board before we uh, close things down for today? We have a few minutes. No questions or comments?
Let's see, we have a question coming up from Cornelius. Well, Cornelius is putting his question up. I will just uh, let you know that uh, written, there's two articles that have been put up on the Shuvu website this week. Uh, one called The Power of Choice, which is a summary of our class last week uh, dealing with free will and repentance, if you'd like to review it in a written form. And there's an article called Divine Providence, which summarizes the teaching in last week's class on Hashkaha Pratis. Now, Cornelius had put up a previous comment where he said, uh, realizing that he, he is realizing with how much ignorance uh, Christians, or as Christians in the past, we have treated and abused the Torah. Realizing this, I can start to respect these teachings with great awe. As I stated before, I start to realize more and more how serious it is to learn the truth. It is the the uh, the Torah is a, is a powerful. It's the word of it's the word of Hashem. It's the word of the Creator of the universe. Um, we really, you know, throughout our lives, we're all guilty. We all um, handle uh, very casually something that is very holy and very precious. And a simple reading of the Torah, particularly the Book of Leviticus, will reveal with how much care. Uh, the Levites and the Kohanim were instructed to handle the holy things of Hashem in the temple. Uh, we know, you know, when Nadav and Avihu decided that they, you know, wanted to offer incense their way, uh, they met with a rather quick, uh, quick end. And so, we, we really do uh, have a very casual attitude towards the Torah, towards worship of, of Hashem. Not that he wants us to be, you know, to be so afraid of him that we that we don't approach him. That's not what he wants at all. Azrielis writes in, Christians used to say that the, that the Torah was severe and that love appears in the gospel, but it's not true. Yesterday I was reading the Proverbs, and like Kohelet, the texts from the Hebrew Bible are really full of love. Hashem is love since the Torah and not since the gospel, I mean. <laughs> Azrael, that, that's very true. Actually, if a person could just... Uh, if Sometimes when Christians are searching and they're beginning to question, or even if they're not questioning, but they're debating with me on the issues of Judaism or the Noahide commandments, sometimes I'll suggest to them that if they could just read only the first five books of the Tanakh, uh, the first five books of their Old Testament, as they call it, uh, and read only those for a period of six weeks, even better, six months, then when they went back uh, afterwards to read their portion, the portion they've added to the Bible, they would find a very distinct uh, difference. People who have done this have told me the thing that they see as they realize that throughout the Tanakh, repeatedly it is Hashem says, Koamar Hashem, so says Hashem, the word of Hashem. Um, you know, it's direct. Whereas in the New Testament, that's not what it says. It's people speaking. And there's a big difference, a huge difference. Okay, any more questions or comments, anyone, before we close the room down? You're pretty quiet this week. I think the encouraging thing that I would like to leave with you is that more and more, particularly as the, the Sanhedrin Beit Din meets to discuss the observance of B'nai Noach, what is permitted and what is not. And remember that their, their interest in this is to protect the soul. It's for the good. It's not as, as naysayers might say, oh, they just want to keep you from the Torah. That's not it at all. As we saw in our discussion about the prohibition on studying Talmudic discourses, the prohibitions are there 
as Azrael has just pointed out, with a motive of love. It's to protect the non-Jew from doing something that could damage their soul. And so it really, um, you should be encouraged that, as we've seen today, the seven universal laws, as Rabbi Sklorfian and Rogalski pointed out, are general commandments which each contain many, many details and other commandments that are related to proper observance of them. The 613 commandments are specific. Each one relates to a specific Torah detail. And in the role that Jews have to be to reveal Hashem's presence in the world, to be his witnesses, it is important that Jews are very specific in their observance. And so hence, uh, things are really spelled out. But with the exception of the categories of exceptions that we've spoken about today, as well as the manner in which B'nai Noach observed Yom Shavai, observed the, the holy days in the Bible, most of the Torah is open and accessible. Now, Azraela writes in, but it's B'nai Noach, can we be proselyte and teach others? Azriella, yes. Um, in fact, you may have joined the class a little after uh, I m- made the comment that one of the responsibilities of the Nenoch is that, one, you have to teach them to your children. And the implication there is, yes, most definitely. If you can teach them to your children, it's only natural that you should teach them to others. Um, the Rebbe of Lubavitch uh, once taught that if there were, if all of the world or most of the world had been keeping the seven universal laws, there would have been no possibility whatsoever for such a thing as a Holocaust. The way, the most effective, the most powerful means we have to peace in the world today is that the Sheva Mitzvot, the seven universal laws, should be taught amongst the nations, that they should be taught to people as the elevation of mankind that they are meant to be. Remember, we just read uh, that a, a, b'nai, a ben or a bat noach who studies these laws can rise to spiritual levels higher than the high priest. What is necessary in the world today is that these seven universal laws be restored to the nations, that we as Jews realize and return to our role, our responsibility of being light to the nations, of learning the significance and the application of these laws and teaching them, and that amongst the nations, those who are observing them likewise pass them on to others. And then we would see, I think, um, a slow but gradual uh, dramatic change in the world today. Okay, I think we might have a couple more questions coming in. Okay, I'm just going to wait for a couple more minutes because I see that both Azriella and Cornelius are trying to to put something up on the board. Azriella says, um, yes, but I would like to print the seven laws and give them to people who do not know about them and didn't know if it was allowed. It is allowed. Yes, you can can print them up. Um, you know, if you need a source for them, um, you know, send me an email, uh, shira at shuvu, s-h-u-v-o-o dot com, and I will send you something uh, that you can use. Um, but no, by all means, uh, any way that you can uh, pass these laws on, make people aware that that they are um, not an attempt by Judaism to keep people away from the Torah, but they are actually the uh, the way appointed by the Creator that all the nations should approach Him, and just how expansive they can be. By all means, yes, you can certainly do so. Cornelius writes in, I am a Benach. 
uh, and with Ashira's help, I put together something in a book that is accepted by one like Ashira. I learned much through the. <laughs> Thank you, Corny. Uh, Corny, you are uh, an exceptional Ben Noach, and it is a privilege to know you. And Azriella, it has been likewise uh, a privilege to get to know you over these past two months. I have very much appreciated your faithfulness in the class as well as the comments and the questions that you ask. It's, it's very important and it helps others. Okay, I see that there's... Okay. Um, well, folks, we're a little over our time frame, so I am uh, happy to have had you in the class today, and I look forward to uh, seeing you again, Bezrat uh, Hashem, in the class next week. Uh, once again, we're going back to Thursday um, for next week, Thursday at uh, 5 p.m. in Israel, 10 p.m. EST. And the class will be on uh, presumed identities and resisting the scepter. There should be some interesting, interesting material. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and God willing, we will see you again next week. Shalom, shalom from Jerusalem.